Welcome to episode 12 of TASA's Inspiring Leaders Podcast. I'm Eric Simpson, and on today's episode, we're exploring how schools can tap into their relationships with families to dispel myths about attendance and decrease chronic absences. We'll talk to Dr. Todd Rogers, a behavioral scientist and professor of public policy at Harvard and co-founder of Everyday Labs about what his research has shown about scalable interventions. So we developed these interventions where we really target these key false beliefs, these misbeliefs about how many days your kid has missed and what normal is. And we find that it is like weirdly potent at reducing absenteeism. As is true with most parts of education policy, a simple compliance focus may leave out the information educators need to make a real difference in student access to support. Join us for a research-based and results-filled conversation with Todd Rogers. Today's guest is Dr. Todd Rogers. Dr. Rogers is a behavioral scientist and professor of public policy at Harvard who studies how mobilizing and empowering students' social networks can increase student success. He founded the Student Social Support R&D Lab at Harvard to use data and behavioral science to develop and prove scalable, high-return-on-investment interventions that mobilize and empower students' social support systems to improve achievement. Dr. Rogers received his PhD jointly from Harvard's Department of Psychology and Harvard Business School, and Dr. Rogers is the co-founder of Everyday Labs. Dr. Todd Rogers, welcome to the Inspiring Leaders Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you start us with what do we know about the importance of attendance and how schools have been addressing chronic absenteeism in the years before the pandemic? Chronic absenteeism is uh, missing a certain percent, usually 10% of total days. And we know that kids who miss a lot of school uh, tend to do worse on all the measures we care about, whether it's ELA proficiency, math, uh, math proficiency, graduating from high school, enrolling or succeeding in college, even later life happiness. Uh, and we also know that it massively disproportionately uh, impacts students from vulnerable populations. Uh, and so it, we, over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a, an increasing focus on even though a single school might have pretty high average attendance, that masks that there are very often huge, like very often very real uh, concerning segments of the student body who are missing a lot of school. And it's not just a predictor of these negative outcomes that we're all really worried about. It's also a leading indicator. So it's actually something that we measure on a daily basis. So we actually have early indications that kids are at risk based on their attendance. And so I think it's, worth, it's useful to think of it both as a, as a predictor, meaning it causes something bad that we care about, but also that it is one of the few active, administratively accessible data points that we have for consistently and continuously monitoring for uh, where is risk rising in what segments of the student body. So what you're saying there is that you know, this chronic absenteeism, uh, missing more than 10% of, of school days, is not only correlated with, um, you know, with, with problems later in life, but it can actually, it's actually one of the causes too, is that, is that right? The evidence is mounting that missing more school means doing worse in school and having worse later life outcomes. And so I think that the research community is sort of converging on 
that the missing school causes you to do worse in school, which is not a crazy causal claim to make. It's also with led to federal and state policies uh, holding districts accountable to reducing absenteeism as one of the metrics that they uh, that they hold as part of ESSA. Whenever districts are are looking at, at groups of students who are are experiencing this this chronic absenteeism, um, before this year, uh, were there <clears throat> common causes that that were um, leading to this absenteeism? There are many different causes. It's it's almost like every absence has its own story, uh, and and so the, it could be that. There's a, a sickness in the family and the parent uh, couldn't get the kid to school. It could be that one of the siblings was sick or, or it could be that there's disruption in the home. Uh, it could be that uh, the parent was working a night shift and couldn't manage, didn't coordinate logistics. It could be that the kid is protesting and doesn't want to go to school. Uh, it could be that the kid is sick or uh, the parent is concerned the kid's going to have an asthma attack. There, there are lots of different causes. So one of the things that I've been working on in my lab at Harvard over the last 10 years is interventions to reduce absenteeism. It's not just uh, interventions that can, that can be proven to reduce absenteeism. It's interventions that can be actually administered at scale by districts. And so one of the challenges as, as someone who does research on, uh, on helping families help kids is you can develop a, an intervention that's really powerful, uh, but if you can't find a way to get it implemented, and very often it requires a lot of common interventions, require teachers and schools to change their behaviors, and it's just hard to get those to scale. So one of the things that, that in my lab we've been doing is exploring different uh, interventions that can robustly reduce absenteeism, but that are easy to implement. Your intervention with families seems to focus on um, Kind of empowering those those parental figures, those guardians, to to really own and know how much their their student is missing school. That what you have found. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what what you have found is that most people really underestimate how much their kid is missing. I, I think you could probably think of there being uh, there are a few different tracks for reducing absenteeism. One is trying to remove barriers, like whether it's transportation. Uh, or uh, or healthcare or housing or uh, bullying in the school or basically like structural elements. And then there are also this, the, as a psychologist, important beliefs that, that parents hold that, that can sometimes be biased uh, and, and important. So over the course of our research, uh, we found that there are a couple of really common misconceptions that parents have that have proven to be really consequential. So the first is parents underestimate their own absences by about 50%. So every district leader that is listening to this will be familiar with this where they tell a parent how many days their kid has missed. Your kid has missed 20 days. And the parent and the parent is like, what? I, I thought my kid has only missed nine or 10. I, that's, that's, and and that, that is in earnest. Like we have found across lots of districts that parents underestimate by about 50% how many days their kid has missed. Another really common belief that, again, district leaders who've had these discussions with families will shake their heads at in agreement is that parents don't realize that their kid misses more school than their classmates. They don't know what normal is. 
and they don't realize that their kid misses more than their classmates. So we develop these interventions where we really target these key false beliefs, these misbeliefs about how many days your kid has missed and at what normal is. And we find that it is like, it, like weirdly potent uh, at reducing absenteeism, like doing these sort of hard copy, repeated rounds of correcting these specific false beliefs that parents have. In one of your papers, you, you mentioned that um, often the school will send a letter that really gives like a hard number of, this is exactly what's going on. Like the, the, these are the number of days your student has missed. Talk, talk to me a little bit about what an effective program looks like and um, the difference it makes. These interventions consistently reduce chronic absenteeism by 10 to 15%. But there's a couple of like key elements to it. And, and it's it sort of, when we describe it, 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 we realize it, I realize that it comes off as, is either really vague or more simple than it is. So one of one of those two, it is it's a very very focused on an asset based view of families with like restorative messaging, non punitive language, right? These families are especially the mo families of the most vulnerable kids are used to communications that are very uh, threatening and and not implying that we're all on the same team. But they also try in earnest to correct important misbeliefs and and so they we send them in hard copy because parents end up putting them on their fridge or on the kitchen counter and they end up becoming what we call social artifacts they stick around the home and uh, i can say sort of backing out of education research and talking more about behavioral interventions one of the real frontiers is like how do you develop an intervention that you deliver now, and every, every educator will be familiar with this. You're talking to a kid in school, and you need them to change their behavior at home to study. How do you do an intervention where you, you administer it now, but change a future behavior? And one of the, the real sweet spots is creating something that can bridge time. Like how do you, and, and in this way, these social artifacts, physical things that are put in prominent places can be really useful. Um, that, that's that's one key element. And then the other element, it turns out the data can speak and tell you which families are the most at risk right now and would be most responsive to an intervent, a timely intervention. And so what we'll do is we'll develop a range of these kinds of messages that really target important false beliefs, but also try to bridge time so that we know that when it arrives, whether it's by digital or hard copy, that's not the moment when a parent is going to be helping to get their kid to school. It's going to be sometime over the coming week or two. Um, so, and then, and then we let the data speak to describe, to, to identify which families would benefit most from these kinds of communications. Often we use assessment data in that big data approach in a, in a punitive uh, way or in a prescriptive way. But what you're talking about here, because your approach is uh, invitational, to the family and offering, you know, this this support and it's non-punitive. It seems like nobody would be harmed by that that extra outreach. Whenever you're looking at you know absenteeism and the way that um, we treat truancy, how does the family engagement invitational method kind of contrast to the truancy method of making it a kind of a legal thing? What what are the differences in the results you get? They're, they're often parallel tracks that, that don't touch enough, but they, they can integrate uh, and be more aligned. So we did a project in, uh, in California where, uh, and it's like Texas, where there are mandated 
truancy notifications when a student misses a certain number of days. And so we worked with a large district that sent 150,000 of these truancy notifications. And we ran a randomized experiment where half the families received a very short, half as many words written at a fifth grade reading level, uh, written in an asset-based way. The other, the other half got the standard notice of truancy, written as if it was not written for humans at all. It was written just for lawyers, right? And it, and it was written in a college reading level, seven-point font, and extremely punitive. And we just randomly assigned. Some parents got the, the more, the, the more simple, simplified one. The other one got the standard one. And we found that simplifying it uh, increased the effectiveness of the notice of truancy by about 50%. And, and what, what is, it is important to sort of flag, I'm assuming the point of the notice of truancy is to reduce absenteeism. Right. Uh, so it, 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 reduced ab, it, it was about 50% more effective at reducing absenteeism. But if it's a more compliance focus where the goal is not just to increase attendance, but somehow to like, I, I don't know, like check boxes, which does seem to be the approach that a truancy system sometimes takes, uh, it sometimes makes me wonder whether the goal even is to just bring the force of threat to, to families. The point, the takeaway, the summary is that simplifying language and communications can be dramatically more effective. And it's not just because uh, people have limited time. There's also like, uh, like, especially for the most vulnerable families, a large chunk have it, like literacy challenges. Everyone is busy uh, and has limited time. And so putting all that together, just writing more concisely, more clearly, and in a more asset-based way tends to be actually more effective. We've seen this in a lot of research. So thinking about that, that uh, restorative approach versus that punitive approach, um, it gets a lot more complex, or it seems to get more complex, whenever we shift to online hybrid instructional models during this, this pandemic. And I was curious, what, what are you seeing with districts um, who are, who are uh, trying to really track down where all their students are. Um, you know, you, you talked about how important it is to have this kind of asset, have this this artifact um, for, for people, but the tangibles in online are, are definitely different. So uh, talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing um, in, in this COVID response and how is it different from the normal absenteeism that we see? Yeah, it's a great question and it's one that Every district that I work with and talk with is worried about, and I'm sure you too. Uh, so March, COVID-19 or coronavirus comes around, all sorts of chaos ensues. And the, it starts with, okay, so what we go to remote, what counts as attendance? And that ends up being, it turns out, still an open question that people don't know how to make sense of. We have a lot of districts with more with higher attendance now than they had before the pandemic because the threshold and I put quotes around attendance because the threshold for attendance is like did they log in once this week or has the teacher been able to text with them at some point which does not at all resemble walking through the doors of a school and being there for an entire school day um, so so the first question is what counts as attendance and I, I worry that the measures that we currently have are masking uh, the, our ability to even identify the students who are most, uh, who are losing the most. And that's, and that's 
that's the that's not the single most vulnerable group. The vulnerable group is the group you and I were talking about before we started recording, which is the large numbers of students who are now gone. We don't know where they are. Uh, and without having a physical presence, it's hard to figure out how to get back in touch with them. And it's terrifying for these kids. Then we go into a world where we're trying to make sure kids are showing up. And, and a big motivation is make sure they're okay. Uh, and one thing, one of the problems districts identify immediately, and I'm sure many of your, your districts experience this, I know this is the case. Uh, it turns out that our contact information for families is terrible. Uh, and, and much like a good average attendance rate masks that there are a lot of students who are missing a lot of school. It, it turns out that about half of the bottom third of students, we don't have good, con we can't contact. We don't have cell phone contact. Uh, the email is invalid. We don't have good digital contact for an extremely large fraction of our lowest income kids. Uh, and we didn't know it. So first is getting valid contact information. One of the things that was surprising, given that I do a lot of mail and text and email to, to families, um, mail address was valid for a lot of families that we didn't have valid cell and digital for, which was a surprise to people that old school U.S. Postal Service but one reason, one thing we've learned is that uh, families, when they have dislocations in their housing, keep the postal service posted, updated, because that's where official communications come through. That's where federal and state communications and other important communications. So the postal service actually has really high contact rates for families that we don't have good digital contact info for, which is kind of ironic. But so we started using mail to get families to update their digital communications so we could communicate digitally with families. We'll be right back with more from my interview with Dr. Todd Rogers right after this break. This episode is sponsored by Everyday Labs. Everyday Labs is a mission-driven company committed to improve student outcomes nationwide by supporting families and educators through low-burden absence prevention. Everyday Labs partners with districts to implement evident which provides universal absence prevention and early intervention through personalized, data-driven family outreach. The team at Everyday Labs is proud to support Texas students, families, and educators by partnering with Dallas ISD. You can learn more at everydaylabs.com or check our show notes for additional links to research and resources mentioned during my conversation with Dr. Rogers. You, you, know, you, you spoke about um, you know, the just the difficulty in deciding what's going to count as attendance. And that, that's, you know, bureaucratically, that's where a lot of conversation stops is, well, how are we going to make sure that these schools are reporting their attendance right? That way they're not, you know, getting money they shouldn't, they shouldn't be getting or anything like that. And it's a non-education discussion. It's really more about, like I said, the bureaucracy of it. As a researcher, as somebody working with schools, I mean, what would you want to see a good, you know, attendance program look like? I wear two hats. I'm a professor at Harvard, and I do research on how to help families help kids and develop scalable interventions. And then I also, uh, out of my lab, started an organization called Everyday Labs that helps districts actually scale and implement the most effective strategies that we and others have developed to reduce absenteeism. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that's been really gratifying, astonishing, and, and, uh, and kind of terrifying is learning about the vendor space in education, where it turns out there is 
so little valid evidence that anything works. And, and the, the kind of evidence that gets thrown around is incredibly misleading. And, and I'm sympathetic to district leaders who have to sift through. And so one of the things that Everyday Labs does is it constantly runs A-B tests, actual randomized experiments, like we talked about for the uh, notice of truancy, to figure out what's more effective and how do we get more effective and how do we increase the, the impact of any given intervention. And so this summer in LA Unified, they, they knew they were going to be remote next fall, this fall, right now where we are. And so they decided they wanted to use summer school as a testing ground, remote summer school as a testing ground for how do we develop interventions to maximize attendance when the remote school year starts. And so we worked with them wearing the Everyday Labs hat and ran a bunch of randomized experiments testing different kinds of multimodal interventions with mail, hard copy mail, text, like what kind of messaging, which pieces of information. And, and in the process ran what I think is the only randomized experiments uh, in the COVID environment to reduce absenteeism, for developing interventions that reduce absenteeism. Everyday Labs sort of developed this intervention that's now pretty widely used around the country uh, to reduce absenteeism in a remote and hybrid environment, which is multimodal, targeting the key false beliefs, writing in ways that families can understand using the science of, of sort of behavior change and attention, uh, but, but also like using, letting the data speak for which families would be most responsive to different kinds of interventions. But honestly, we need better data on what counts as, a, as an absence, what it means to be absent, uh, because really we're worried about learning loss and checking in by text with the teacher is not about learning loss. It's just making sure you're you're healthy and safe, uh, which is which is great and and a, and a first order concern. But now, as educators, we move into a, an environment that looks like it does now. We also need to make sure we're serving and being accessible to all families. What I wonder is, whenever we are looking at a very rigid compliance-based approach to attendance, does that make it less likely that districts are able to do that deep dive? Um, that they need to do to be able to actually address the underlying causes and, and make a difference in that? Does it become just a, a, an observant report? Two, two tacks on this, two angles on this. One, I think it's useful to think of, uh, to realize how um, burdened and, and uh, stretched teachers are. And so, and we, and think about what do we want, what are teachers best at? And make sure that we are freeing them up to do what they're best at and taking things off their plate that they're not best at. And they're best at building relationships with kids and teaching kids. Um, and so when possible, I think we want, we want to carve out those as the key functions for what teachers do. And then whatever we can uh, that can be taken up to administrative levels or whatever else off their plates. And so this is why some of the first tier, like broad, broad implemented like messaging about how many days your kid has missed. Uh, here's the, where you can pick up food. You know, here's your login information. Those are the kinds of things that we end up sort of channeling and taking off teacher's plates. Uh, then from a like bureaucratic, <clears throat> bureaucratic standpoint, uh, I, I do think the compliance mentality is, is just the way these sort of institutions are. And so the question is just how do we align incentives 
so that the the compliance aligns with actual practices that are best for kids. And it it's a really tough situation because it's this these institutions, whether it's the state level, district level, or school level, uh, have have had to navigate minor changes, you know, year over year, uh, and now a complete you know, we'll call it a 37 degree shift where all systems have to be rethought rapidly in an institution and bureaucracy that just hasn't, hasn't been built to make these kinds of rapid changes. So it's, I, I guess, flexibility and patience, but also like decreasing the emphasis on compliance and, and increasing the emphasis on intent and, and impact on connecting families with, with the sort of need, the things that they need. Um, I want to add one last piece that we didn't we didn't touch on. If that's okay, please. So Everyday Labs, in addition to they, they send these interventions to reduce absenteeism, and thousands of families call every week with questions about attendance, and uh, and so there's this this multilingual thirty person parent support team that responds to parents and answers questions from from quite districts around the country, and. Typically, until COVID, it was questions about attendance or how, how to, about transportation or uh, about enrollment, like school-related questions. But since COVID, the, the questions are about food and eviction and healthcare and, and login information. Now, literally more than ever in our lives, there are more families experiencing unbelievable disruption and, uh, and dislocation. And they need to navigate complicated systems that somehow are not built to be readily navigated. And schools often in the past have in-person helped families navigate these. And so the, the parent support team that Everyday Labs has now helps to direct families to relevant city and state resources in addition to district resources at the approval of the district. And it just it has drawn my attention to that one of the key functions that has now been lost with uh, students not being in person is families having <clears throat> direct human contact, especially the most vulnerable families, having direct human contact uh, with an institution they trust that will help them navigate the ways to solve their many needs that, that are actually available to them. And so I, I it's, it's one of the things that's lost that I don't think it's, uh, we focus on enough, which is having, having trusted institutions and people who are who vulnerable families can ask for just general, how do I, how do I navigate this? We have more need than ever for it and uh, less contact or access than ever before. And so I, I, I don't know how to rebuild it other than that, you know, we use our parent support team to try, but honestly, it's, it's the, this is one of the things that I think we should really wrestle with in the coming months and years. Well, Dr. Todd Rogers, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Dr. Todd Rogers and Nicole Bosworth for the generosity and insight they brought to this episode. We have a link to some of the tools and research from Everyday Labs that were mentioned during Dr. Rogers' interview. And we're thankful to Everyday Labs for their sponsorship of this episode. We thank all of you for tuning in to the TASA Inspiring Leaders podcast. Be sure to look for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Until next time, from all of us at TASA World Headquarters, stay safe and healthy.